everybody. This is Heidi St. John. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the 800th episode of the Heidi St. John podcast. I'm so glad you guys have joined me. As promised, I'm going to be announcing a giveaway today. And my friend Ken Ham is here. He is going to bless and encourage you. We're going to be talking about all things worldview and why your view of Genesis matters. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. All right. So you guys, I'm so glad that you're here. I've asked Ken to come on for the 800th episode of the show. There was nobody better I could think of. This guy knows the word of God, and he's going to encourage you and exhort you today uh, to just take God at his word. But before we get started, I want to just encourage you with a couple of things. First of all, we're going to be doing some giveaways today, and I'm going to give you instructions for how you can enter at the end of the podcast. So listen to the end, and I'll give you instructions for how to participate in the giveaways. We're going to be giving three packages away, and I'm going to add a list of the package goodies to the show notes. So if you want to see what's in each of those packages, you're going to need to go to the show notes. All right. So thanks for tuning in, everybody. Today, wanted to let you guys know before we get started, as you know, I will be in Kansas City, Missouri for my women's conference, Faith That Speaks. I'm coming in on the 24th of August, and it's not too late to get your tickets. We're expecting about 500 women to show up to that event. I want to just encourage you, bring your Bibles, bring your notebooks. We're going to spend a whole day talking about why the Word of God is so important and why it's so important that we can know it and defend it. This is one of the reasons I love my friend Ken Ham. He is my guest today on Meet My Friend Friday, and I think this is the first time I've ever had him on the show, so I'm going to go ahead and introduce him to you for those of you who aren't familiar. Ken is the CEO and founder of Answers in Genesis and the Creation Museum and also the Ark Encounter. You can find him at answersingenesis.org. Ken Ham, welcome to the podcast. Hey, hi, Heidi. Is that how you say it? Heidi? <laughs> Only since the last time you said it. <laughs> well, I have an Australian accent, so it probably comes out different. You know, sometimes yeah. people frown at me at some of the ways I say things. Well, I remember the last time that uh, we were at the Ark, my son Spencer is talking about going to Australia, and you were teaching him a little bit of Australian slang, and he's still trying to figure it out, because you can talk really fast with your Australian accent, as I recall. Yeah, uh, yeah I think I said something like, G'day, how would you like to come help me blue down by the black stump where the crows fly back and starve the wizards, stone the crows, have a great time, talk about Ned Kelly, brought a few spuds under a gum tree. You know, it was something like that anyway. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. We're still trying to we're still trying to get some of it some of it down. Spencer's been talking about going over uh, and visiting the YWAM base over there. So, he feels like you gave him a pretty good introduction to some Australian slang. So, what do you call your wife? I remember I remember you were telling me like what do you, is it bubble and strife or bubbles and what did yeah, you say? Bu- bubble and strife. Yeah. Well, that's a rhyming slang. So, there's a whole there's this Australian slang, but then there's a rhyming slang, and the rhyming slang is like you know Billy Lids of the kids, and the bubble and strife is the wife, and you know things like that. <laughs> but I, 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 I don't call my wife that though. <laughs> no, that's actually really smart. That was a that's something that you've learned for all these years of marriage. So that's good. Those that's a good tip for everybody. So you've got a really awesome thing going on over at Answers in Genesis. I was just at the Ark Encounter speaking for Answers for Women, which I loved. It was a fantastic event. Tell listeners about, I've told them a little bit about it, but I think it's so much more fun hearing it from you. Tell us about the Ark Encounter. Well, the Ark Encounter is a world-class attraction. In fact, we have two attractions, the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum, and they're the two leading world-class attractions in the world. And 
the Ark Encounter is actually a life-size Noah's Ark. And, you know, over the years, actually it goes back to 1975 when I became a public school science teacher and the kids knew I was a Christian and they said, so how can you believe the Bible because evolution's true, look at our textbooks. And one of the kids said, so Noah couldn't get the animals on the Ark. And mm. I realized that those questions were a stumbling block to them. And so I, I started to teach them and answer those questions. And over the years, as I've traveled around the world, one of the most asked questions you do get asked concerns the flood. Is there any evidence for the flood? And how could Noah fit the animals on the ark? And of course, the whole world, in a sense, is sort of familiar with Noah's ark because you have these little bathtub arcs and gift shops all around the world. And, you know, you have bathtub arcs and children's books, you know, with giraffes sticking out the chimney, a little bathtub Right, it looks like cartoons. Them. Yeah, it's going to sink at any moment. And unfortunately, a lot of churches have them pasted on their kindergarten walls. And when I visit those churches, I, I almost get arrested for, you know, wanting to paint graffiti <laughs> over them and things like that. Um, but what w- one of the... One of the big stumbling blocks for people even thinking that you can believe that Genesis is true is the account of the ark and the flood because people believe there's no evidence for it and they believe that uh, the ark was just too small and that whole account can't be true. And unfortunately, even many of our Christian books for kids reinforce that with these bathtub arcs. And so over the years, we've always tried to at some of our conferences you know give people an idea of the size of the ark we use helium balloons to sort of stake it out and uh you know it's it while we we're building the creation museum in 2004 we we're talking about what we could do next because after all you know you get a creation museum opened you can't just stop there you gotta do well, something and else. you yeah you were gonna have your like napoleon moment right where you looked around you're like I've conquered this. What are we on to next? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so he talked about what if we really built a life-size ark to show people the size of the ark? And, of course, how would you ever do that? And in 2005, even before the Creation Museum was opened, we said, you know what? Let's do that. Let's really seriously move forward with looking at how to build a life-size ark. And we we're able to do that, and that's a long story as to how that happened, but uh, the Lord brought all sorts of people into our lives to enable us to do that. It's the biggest timber frame structure in the world, and so it's one and a half times the length of a football field, half the width of a football field. It's built 15 feet off the ground, and it stands seven stories high, uh, and, and then 10 stories high at the bow, and it's filled with all sorts of exhibits teaching exhibits, themed exhibits. You walk through all three decks, answering all those most asked questions people have. How could Noah look after the animals? How could he fit them on board? What would the difference between a kind and a species? And, you know, the land animals, what do they look like? And how could he feed them? How could he get rid of the waste? And what about the ice age after the flood? And what about people coming off the ark and then the Tower of Babel? I mean, we deal with all those sorts of topics uh, the Creation Museum is is different in that it's a walk through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, Noah's Ark is more, you know, the Ark Encounter, more emphasizing the aspects of the teaching about the flood and the fossils and the animals. And we actually have a zoo behind the Ark as well. And you spoke in our 2,500-seat multipurpose center, and we just opened a big family playground for kids. So it's an incredible family-friendly place, and it has zip lines that go across the valley, and it's just a place to come and have fun, learn about God's Word, learn answers to those questions. We have one of the biggest restaurants in America. It's called Emzara's Buffet. It seats 1,700 people, and we feed thousands of people a day. There you can gain a lot Emzara. of weight in there. I, I learned that in my two, in my two uh, full days at the Ark Encounter. I ate there a lot. I think I gained 10 pounds. 
<laughs> and we have Genesis one thirty food, and we also have Genesis yep. nine three food. What What's the difference? Genesis one one twenty nine and thirty. Uh, Genesis one twenty nine, I should say. That's where Adam and Eve were told they could eat fruit. And verse thirty is the animals were told, you know, it said they eat plants. But in Genesis nine three, after the flood, God changed our diet, and He said, "Now you can eat everything." So you see, we have salads and you got everything and we have everything so it's, it's really a genesis 9 3 but if you want to stick to genesis 1 29 that's okay <laughs> well i gotta tell you you know we took of the kids that jay and i still have at home i think we had four of our kids with us and they if you gave them the choice between going to the creation museum and the ark encounter they'd pick the ark encounter it really is uh, astonishing. When I first saw it, I mean, you and I have been talking about this for years, but I hadn't been to it yet. And when I, when we first drove over the hill and could kind of catch a glimpse of it for the first time, it's it takes your breath away how how big it is. And then you see, no wonder people thought Noah was crazy. He's building, and I mean, it is ginormous, right? This huge ark. And then you go into it and you guys have done a spectacular job of answering the questions that people ask about the flood and about the ark. One of the big questions that we always get, you know, uh, we hear that when I'm out talking about uh, six literal days of creation and talking about the the ark and uh, people will say, well, how did you get those those big animals onto the ark? You have answered it really beautifully, but for the listeners, can you just give a really quick synopsis of how uh, it's explained how Noah was able to do that? Well, first of all, we need to understand that uh, God made kinds of land animals after their kind or according to their kind. We read that in Genesis chapter 1. And Genesis chapter 6, it says two of every kind, seven pairs of some, but of each kind went on board Noah's Ark. So the first thing we do is explain what a kind is. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, when I debated Bill Nye five years ago, Bill Nye mocked at me for believing in Noah's Ark because he said you couldn't fit the millions of species on board. Well, the Bible doesn't mm-hmm. use the word species. And we have a classification system, farm, uh, kingdom, farm, class, order, family, genus, species. And we would say that the kind, word kind, is actually translated from the Hebrew word mean, and it would be more at the family level of classification. And so when you look at, for instance, dogs, all different dog species, about 34 different dog species, and then all our varieties of our modern dogs, they're all interconnected. In other words, they can all interbreed uh, and they're all interconnected uh, in a way. So there's only one kind of dog, and by the way, it's called dog. And so mm-hmm. uh, only two dogs were needed on the ark, and they didn't necessarily have to be big dogs or really small dogs. I mean, the, the, the dogs God made originally would have had the genetic diversity that God put in them so that different combinations of genes can result in different characteristics. You know, you could get dogs that have combinations of genes having long hair or short hair or medium Mm -hmm. hair or being bigger dogs or smaller dogs. It could have been that the two dogs that went on Noah's Ark weren't weren't really that big, yet they could have offspring bigger than them just depending on what genes that they inherited. And over time, after the flood, as the numbers increase and they move away from each other, you end up forming different species of dogs, but you only needed two on the Ark. So when you go through and work out that, uh, two of each family in most instances were needed on the ark, seven pairs of some. There were far fewer animals needed on the ark than most people realize. And we would say at the most about 1,400 kinds, but probably less than a 1,000 kinds because, you know, there are some species today like bats. We believe all bats are the one kind, but we've never documented them all into breeding, so we allow them to be separate kinds for the sake of argument. But 
when when you start looking at it all, we would say far fewer animals than people realize. And you know, for the for the really big ones, maybe like the sauropods. I mean, even when they hatched out of eggs, they were small. And I'm not saying babies went on the ark, but it would make sense that that young adults uh, would have gone on the ark. And it's very possible mm-hmm. before the flood, you didn't have the extremes in variation that you see today because after the flood we believe that because of the flood the continents were split up there's probably one continent before the flood and so now as animals move away and get to different places you know you can get different extremes that are represented because of the genetic diversity that's there before the flood there would have been much more mixing and you might have had some of those extremes anyway so there's a lot of things that you can look at and we answer all those questions in the ark in various exhibits to say see Noah didn't need anywhere near the number of animals on the ark did you think he could easily fit them on board and the average size of a land animal is really not that big when you right. look at the average. So uh, there was plenty of room on the ark. Well, it's a it's an incredible exhibit. As you walk through, I just, I watched my kids, you know, just their faces light up. You guys have done a great job of making the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum very family friendly. And you and I have this, uh, we share a passion for teaching children from a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview. Why is it so important for parents? There are a lot of parents listening to this today. We get questions all the time about why homeschooling, why Christian education, why is a biblical view uh, parent, for parents to impart a biblical worldview to their children, why is this so important? Well, Heidi, if you if you look at the world today, I mean, look at the culture that we live in. I, I liken it to a tornado. There's a tornado raging around us. And you mm. think of all the issues that confront us today, whether they're the issues of gender, you know, transgender and gay marriage and euthanasia. And, and then there's even uh, talk more and more of pedophilia. And then there's yes. polygamy and polyamory. And so it goes on. And, you know, our kids are growing up hearing those sorts of terms, which I never heard as a kid, actually. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a different sort of culture. And so think about this. It's like a tornado raging around them. And they can be so easily, as the Bible says, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. How do they know what to believe? How do they know what they believe? Why do they believe what they do? And how do they approach these issues? And what about talking to people who who would uh, talk to them about those issues? What do they say to them? How do, how do they understand people who don't uh, believe Christian doctrines like marriage being one man and one woman? And that's why, you know, when you think about the Ark and the Creation Museum, what we do at these attractions is we're helping people understand the history in Genesis 1 to 11, and we we represent that, for instance, at the Creation Museum, we walk people through the seven seas of history from Genesis to Revelation, creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, and then Christ's cross consummation. But those first four seas, creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, that's Genesis 1 to 11. Genesis 1 to 11 is the geological, biological, uh, ast- astronomical, anthropological history that's actually foundational to all doctrine and foundational to our worldview. See, for for a lot of people today, they sort of look on in the church, and I think the way it's taught in a lot of our churches, the Bible is sort of a guidebook to life. It's sort of, you know, a book about spiritual things, moral things, relationships. But the Bible is a book of history, and it gives us the history concerning the past so that when you take that history as real history in Genesis 1 to 11, and that's the foundation for the way you think, then when you look at the world today and you see all the death and suffering in there, when you have the right foundation that there was no death originally of animals or man, death is a consequence of our sin. This is a groaning world because of the fall. So this is not the world as God made it, which was very good originally. This is now a fallen world. And then 
when you say, oh, look, there are fossils all over the earth and they're in layers thousands of feet thick in places in these sedimentary strata. But if you already know about the flood and you already know that death came after sin, so the fossils couldn't have formed before man sinned, and then the Bible says there was a global flood, the catastrophe of Noah's day, then you say, now I know why there are fossils all, all over the earth. And then when you look at all the people groups and you say, well, how do you explain all the differences in, in these people groups around the world? And notice I didn't say races because even the secular world says all humans are one race. But, of course, that's what you'd expect based on the Bible. We're all descendants of Adam and Eve. We're descendants of then the people uh, on Noah's Ark, the three sons of Noah and their wives. And then because of the Tower of Babel, God gave different languages. And so as people split up, over time, depending on who married who, they formed different cultures. And because of the genetic diversity God had inbuilt into the humankind, then you will see specific characteristics in regard to skin shade, eye shape, ear shape, whatever it is. Uh, and you look at those differences today, and they're only minor differences, really, reflecting some of a, a minor uh, genetic diversity. But uh, nonetheless, you understand they're different people groups, and then you understand the gospel is for every tribe and nation because uh, we all go back to Adam and Eve. And then when you understand that history in Genesis, anthropology, for instance, when you understand that God made man in his image, he made him different to the animals, uh, he made man from dust, and then he put the man to sleep and made the woman from the man and that's the foundation for marriage. Then you realize that's why I believe marriage is a man and a woman, uh, because God made the first marriage. It's a God-ordained institution. You become one because you're one flesh. That history in Genesis, that anthropology, is true. And then when you understand that God made man in his image, Genesis 1, uh, 27, he made man in his image, you realize no animal was made in God's image, only humans were. So when you get DNA from the mother and from the father and you get a fertilized egg, you have a unique combination of information from both male and female, but that's made in God's image. So then you understand abortion would be killing a human being. So you see, if we don't have that foundation in Genesis, we're not going to have a Christian worldview. And we, we've got to understand that ultimately there are only two foundations God's word or man's word. And secular education, the foundation is man's word. They have a secular worldview. You can't just add God to that to have a truly Christian worldview. You have to start from the revelation from the one who knows everything, who's revealed the key events of history to us to have the right foundation to correctly understand this world. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, my friend Bill Jack was on the show with me a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about the secularization of the culture, starting with the schools, and really even the churches have been secularized uh, recently. I read last week that the Lutheran Missouri Synod has taken God's word now and said it's meant to be taken literally. And this is another question I have for you, because I get this all the time from parents. Uh, I, I get many questions from people who are listening to the podcast who are theistic evolutionists, right? And they, they're, uh, to me, it's, uh, well, I'm going to see what you have to say. But when, when someone asks you, does it matter if we believe in a literal six days of creation or doesn't it, what's your answer? Well, I'd answer that in a number of ways. But the first thing, when somebody says to me, does it matter whether there's six literal days or not? My, my first question is this, does it matter if we take God at his word or not? I That's mean, because right. that really is the ultimate issue. It's an issue of authority. Now, the reason I say that is because when you actually look at it, the reason people don't believe in six days has nothing to do with what the Bible says. It's got everything to do with being influenced from the world outside 
from particularly the belief in millions of years and somehow trying to fit that into the Bible. You see, people, people will say to me, well, you know, the word day can mean something other than ordinary day. And I'll say that's true, but it can also mean an ordinary day. And so it's not right. a matter of it's not a matter of whether it can mean something other than an ordinary day. It's a matter of what does the context uh, mean uh, in in that particular passage. And you know, if you if you look at the Hebrew word yom for day, it's used two thousand three hundred one times in the singular or plural form in the Old Testament. Here's the interesting thing. We know what it means everywhere it's used except Genesis one. We have a problem. We say we don't know what it means. So why is why is it Genesis one is the problem? And it's because if you believe in six literal days and Adam was made on day six and you know he had a son Seth when he was one hundred and thirty and you go through and read all those genealogies, you realize, well, wait a minute, that means the whole Earth and universe only about six thousand years old. But hey, the world says millions of years, and so many Christians want to fit the millions of years into the Bible. The the the, the thing is, if those days are ordinary days, you can't get millions of years from the bible and i would say they are ordinary days because the hebrew word yom whenever it's qualified with a number or evening or morning or night it means an ordinary day Mm -hmm. and when you look at genesis chapter one the first day has the number first day and it has evening and has morning and has night and each of the other days have the evening morning and number qualifying the word day so you look up any Hebrew lexicon like uh, Brown Driver Briggs or Kola Baumgartner, that they will give you examples of when does the word day mean an ordinary day according to the Hebrew language. Well, the first example is Genesis 1-5, the first day of creation. I mean, Exodus 20 verse 11 even reiterates that. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh. That's why we have a seven-day week based on the sixth day uh, of creation and one day of rest right there in Genesis chapter 1. But then I want to add something else. And the other thing I want to add is this. When you believe in millions of years as a Christian, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. Because, you know, salvation is conditioned upon faith in Christ, not what you believe about the age of the earth. But if you believe in millions of years, here's a problem you've got. The millions of years came out of atheistic and deistic naturalism of the 1700s and 1800s when people wanted to explain everything, and particularly the fossil record without God. And they said those fossil layers were laid down millions of years before man. And many Christians have taken that millions of years and tried to fit in the days of creation or a gap between the first two verses of Genesis or whatever it is. But as soon as you have millions of years before man, in the fossil record, it's full of dead things, fossils, and it's also full of uh, diseases like cancer and uh, abscesses and all sorts of other diseases you see in the bones in the fossil record. But wait a minute, after God created Adam, he said everything he had made, everything, was very Mm -hmm. good. So if Mm -hmm. you believe in millions of years, God calls cancer very good. And one of the big problems our our young people have today, the younger generations like Generation XYZ, uh, they say, how can there be a loving God? Look at all the death and suffering in the world. It's one of the big issues atheists bring up all the time. How can you believe in a loving God? Look at all the death and suffering in the world. If you look at the world today and see all that death and suffering, and you say you believe in millions of years and told your kids that, then all that death and suffering has gone on for millions of years, and God's responsible for that. No wonder they they struggle with a loving God and a Mm -hmm. holy God. But if you've taught them the death and struggle you see today is because of man's sin. We live in a fallen world because of sin. 
And that's why there's all this death and struggle today. And the fossil record, most of that's actually the graveyard of the flood. It's not the graveyard of millions of years. Then they start to realize it's our sin that caused this problem. God's not responsible for it. We are. He stepped into history in the person of his son to be the God-man to save us from what our sin did to this world. Then the, then they start to understand the gospel and they under, understand that death is the penalty for sin and understand the holiness of God and understand the havoc we wreaked in Adam because we rebelled against God. You see, it's very, very important. And the, the last thing I want to say, Heidi, is this. When you've taught your children, you can add millions of years into the Bible. What you're really doing is saying you can take what man has said and add it into the Bible and reinterpret the Bible, you're actually undermining the authority of the word of God, then we wonder why they say we can take what man says about marriage, that you can have two men or two women. We can reinterpret marriage or or we can reinterpret other parts of the Bible. And then they start to doubt you can trust the Bible. And there is an incredible exodus from the church right now. Only 18% of millennials go to church uh, the greatest generation, you know, those born before 1928, 56% of them went to church. There's an exodus from the church, and it's really because we haven't raised up generations boldly to stand on God's word, taught them how to defend the faith against all these attacks of today. And because much of the church has compromised God's word in Genesis, they doubt, and that leads to unbelief. They walk away from the church. We need to get back to the authority of the Word of God and teach them a truly Christian worldview. That's exactly right. I cannot keep up with you. I'm writing notes faster than I can, than you're talking faster than I can write, my friend. Listen, one of the things I love about your ministry is that you're encouraging everyone who's listening to you to say, listen, God is not silent on the issues that we're facing today. God addresses them. He addresses the issue of marriage. He addresses the issue of transgenderism. I got a letter uh, just last week from a mom whose son, her 14-year-old son, came home from public school after being really indoctrinated for two for two years in a row about uh, in transgenderism, one of his friends decided that he was a girl, and so he begins he's beginning the process of transition. And she said to me, "I've I've read God's word, Heidi. It doesn't address transgenderism, but she's wrong. It does address it. Can where how can we know how God feels about the issue of transgenderism? Is that in the Bible?" Well, you know. I talked about the fact that Genesis 1 to 11 is actually the foundational history for the whole of the rest of the Bible, right? for our Christian worldview, and for all of our doctrines is foundational to the gospel because the origin of all the basic entities of life in the universe are in Genesis 1 to 11. So if people were only taught Genesis 1 to 11 as the foundation for their doctrine, they would know how to think correctly about this. When you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says that, God made man in his image, in the image of God he created he him. And then it says, male and female, he created them. Now, the Bible doesn't say he created male to change into female or female to change into male. He says he created them male and female. And then when you get to Genesis uh, chapter 2, uh, he tells us the details that he made the male from dust. And then, then he brought the animals to Adam. Uh, the first man to name, and he saw that he was alone. There was no one like him because no one else has made the image of God. You know, he didn't look at a female chimp and say she's close enough or something like that. Um, And remember, God made the animals by saying, let the earth bring forth the animals. God didn't make man like that. He said, let us make man in our image. So God put man to sleep and from his side made the first woman. So woman came out of the man. Now, it's interesting 
the first recorded words of Adam were, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman uh, because she came from the man. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 8 says the woman came from the man. And then in verse Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says, therefore, this is the reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they'll be one flesh. So reason for marriage. Now, in the New Testament, in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, when Jesus is asked about marriage, he says, haven't you read? He which made them, beginning made them male and female. And it's the whole basis for marriage. So the created order is God made humans male and female. And genetically, we know that's true. When you have the XX and XY chromosome, we know that's true. There's male and female. And you know, with this whole transgender movement, when they want to say they want to change from one to the other, they have to do horrible surgeries and to remove, you know, physical oh, it's devastating. Uh, structures and yeah. so on. And and they have to try to overcome hormones and add other hormones and try to change one into something that one is not genetically actually um, for, uh, you know, what, what your genetics are, what you're genetically determined to be. But see, so here's the issue. God made male and female, but there's one aspect of this that we need to teach our children. Sin has distorted the world. Sin, sin changes everything because what they will bring up is this the secularists will say oh yeah but you know you can say male and female but there but there are exceptions but when you look at the exceptions they're less than one percent because we do have people who have genetic problems right. because of sin and so there are mistakes there are copying mistakes there are mutations in fact there are all sorts of diseases and deformities and problems that people can have because of sin. So we need to explain to our children, look, they're going to try to tell you there are exceptions and use that to negate the rule and negate the created order. But the Bible gives us the foundation as to why there are these so-called exceptions. There's problems because of sin. And they're a very small percentage, but they're there because of sin. And, and those sort of people need our love and so on. But the bottom line is the created order is God made male and female, and the science of genetics confirms it. So that should be the way we should teach our children. Yeah, and we're really denying science in the culture right now. I find this I find this quite amusing because for so long, you know, we had these so-called scientists and uh, the so-called, you know, the people who are promoting evolution to our children, and now they're teaching our children that uh, you can change that you can change your gender, that men can become women, and, and I think even little children understand that's intrinsic wrong. And it sort of brings me to my next question for you, uh, because we, we talk a lot on the show about education and the importance of education. And the Bible teaches us in Luke 640 that when a student is fully trained, he'll be like his teacher. And we know that uh, that what we teach our children has implications for generations to come. And we're watching the public schools really making a grab for children, right? We're seeing this in the libraries through Drag Queen Story, which I've been fighting tooth and nail in my neck of the woods. Uh, what what do you what do you talk to parents uh, who they drop their kids off at public school and they think well it's just reading writing and arithmetic is there such a thing uh, can as a neutral education? Well, let's look at what the Bible says. Okay, first of all, when you, when you start in Genesis, God comes to Adam and says, Adam, don't eat the fruit of the tree. So what's God saying? Obey my word. Obey God's word. And then the devil comes to Eve and says, did God really say you don't have to obey his word? Uh, you can become like God. You can be your own God. In other words, trust man's word. Mm. And so a battle began between two foundations, between two religions. 
right? Because ultimately there's only two, God's word, man's word. Mm -hmm. Now look through the whole of Scripture. What's, what Scripture portray that battle as? Light and darkness. Build your house on the rock, build your house on the sand. Those who gather, those who scatter, those who are for Christ, those who are against, those who trust uh, the fountain of living waters, those who trust the systems of man. It begins with the tree of life, the tree of death, which is the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And so all the way through Scripture, what do you see? There's no neutrality. You're either for Christ or against. You either walk in the light or darkness. Uh, you either gather or you scatter. There's no neutral position. And see, that's been a problem with the church. We've got this idea, oh, they took Bible, creation, prayer out of the public schools. They took religion out. No, they did not. They took Christianity out and they replaced it with the religion of atheism. See, atheism is a religion. Atheists claim, oh, no, we're just neutral because we have a non-belief. No, you don't have a non-belief. You have a belief. You believe there's no God. You believe life arose by natural processes. Uh, you, you believe that the laws of nature all arose by natural processes. You believe when you die, that's the end and there's nothing more. And you see... When you look at the uh, public school uh, education system, what is the foundation for their worldview? The foundation is man determines truth. It's, it's naturalism. What is naturalism? Because they explained, look at the textbooks. You can explain the whole of reality without God. That's naturalism. That's atheism. So really, public schools, by and large, uh, have become churches of atheism. That's what they are. And many of the teachers are the high priests of atheism. We've got to understand when our kids go to an education system where they don't have the Bible, that's not neutral because if you're not for Christ, you're against. So if, the, so if the education system is not for Christ, it is against. And, you know, when you look at it from the biblical perspective, the Bible says that we are to be salt, the, uh, the salt of the earth, but it also says, have salt in you, and if the salt's contaminated, it's good for nothing. When our children are born, uh, you know, the, the Bible says they have a conscience because God gave them that, uh, but they don't know about Adam and Eve, and they don't know about the flood, and they don't know about the origin of death, and they don't know uh, about, you know, God creating marriage and so on. Our job as parents is to put that, put that salt in them. They can't be salt till they have salt. And if the salt's contaminated, then it's good for nothing. And so we've got to remember that. You know, sometimes parents get the idea that our kids need to be in the public school to witness to the other kids. And I say to them, be careful you're not sacrificing your kids because uh, most kids do not survive the public education system. The majority of church kids do not. And statistics bear that out. It, it, you can't deny that. And the thing is, we should be building them up with the salt of God's word, teaching them apologetics, teaching them to defend their faith, give them a whole Christian worldview so they know what they believe. So they, their whole worldview is anchored in God's word. So this tornado of moral relativism that's raging around us, they're not going to be uh, ripped apart by that. Instead, they'll know what they believe, why they believe what they do. And then as they're filled with salt and know what they believe and why they believe what they do, they will be able to go out and then be witnesses uh, to the world. Yeah, that's right. How do a parent, I know that there's, there's going to be a mom or a dad listening to this right now, and they've got maybe a 13 or 14 year old child at home. And this mom's thinking to herself, I haven't been doing that. I've not been teaching my children from a biblical worldview. They don't know God's word. They can't defend it because I don't know his word and I can't defend it. Uh, how do we uh, how do we encourage parents? Where can we encourage parents who are in that scenario to start training their children to have uh, a biblical worldview, to understand the Bible? 
Oh, well, you know, Heidi, there's lots of ways we can answer that. And, and, and I'll answer it from an Answers in Genesis perspective, and I'm sure you can answer it uh, as well um, from lots of other um, areas too. But the, the first thing, we, you know, they need to understand is studying the Bible is not just, you know, 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock on Mondays through Fridays. If we If we really understand what it means to have a Christian worldview, that the Bible then is the foundation for our entire worldview in every area. That's the important thing uh, to understand. And what we also need to be looking at is this. Look, the Bible The Bible actually warns us in Second Corinthians 11, verse 3. Paul has a warning for us. He says, Beware, lest by any means as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind shall be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Mm. In other words, the warning is, I want to warn you that that the devil's going to use the same method on you and on your kids and on your grandkids, on your neighbors, on your friends. He's going to use the same method on you and your kids as he did on Eve to get you to position and not believe the Bible and not believe in God. And what, what was that method? Go back to Genesis 3, verse 1. The devil came to Eve and said, did God really say? And in other words, the first attack was on the authority of the word of God. And then... You can become like God. You decide truth for yourself. And so that should be a warning to us that, number one, we need to be teaching our kids the foundation that God is a creator. He owns us. He's the one that sets the rules. He's the one that determines right and wrong. Because if you don't have that foundation, then you become your own God. And that's really what's happened in the culture. We've had generations of kids come through an education system where they've really been told man determines truth, you're your own God. And so we, we need to deal with that. Secondly, we need to look at the other part there. Did God really say? In other words, I call that the Genesis 3 attack. What does the devil use in our time to try to get people to doubt and not believe the word of God? And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Peter and Paul didn't have to deal with carbon dating. We do. It wasn't an issue in their day. Martin Luther didn't have to talk about dinosaurs because the word wasn't even invented until 1841, and he was back in the 16th century. So what, what is it today? And one of the things we notice today, when I say to any, to any audience, how many of you have heard these sorts of statements or questions? But we live in a scientific age. Science has disproved the Bible. The Bible's a book of mythology. And, well, where did Cain get his wife? How did Noah get the animals on the ark? And what about carbon dating? Didn't dinosaurs live millions of years ago? Didn't we come from ape men? Hasn't evolution been proved? They all put their hands up, anywhere in the world, in fact, because they're the issues today that have been leveled at our kids that cause them to doubt the Bible. And so we need to be saying, I've got to prepare them and make sure they know what they believe, that they're prepared with answers to defend uh, the Christian faith against the attacks of our day so that they won't be led astray. And, you know, that's why we produce apologetics curricula. We produce apologetics books, giving answers to the most asked questions today. We have a four-year Bible curriculum that's apologetics, biblical authority, chronological uh, in the way it's actually produced so that it, it gives you a whole perspective foundationally of the Bible and prepares you for those attacks that people are going to make on God's word. I mean, that's the sort of thing that we need to be doing. And then when it comes to, you know, talking about science and talking about history, recognizing again, we've got to have a curriculum that starts with God's word in Genesis 1 to 11, because, you know, take take biology. 
you've got to understand God made kinds according to their kind. That gives you a basis for understanding uh, how you can have different kinds of animals uh, and yet have great variation within a kind, different species, and to teach them that that's not evolution. We need to be looking at what the world is teaching and make sure... We need to make sure our kids know more about evolution than the evolutionists because the more they know about it, the more they'll understand why it's wrong, and we need to teach them that way. But we need to teach them the right foundation uh, from God's Word at the same time. And so there's a lot to it, but that's why the Lord has raised up ministries like Answers and Genesis and what you're doing, and there's lots of others out there too, to get people back to the foundation of God's Word and to raise up generations who have a truly Christian worldview. Yeah, and parents need to understand this isn't going to happen on its own. Our kids are not going to get faith from us by osmosis. We really have to teach them, and that's why I love so much uh, what you're doing at Answers in Genesis. You're giving parents uh, not just a place where they can take their, their families and show them, hey, this is what God's word says, and this is why we know it's true. But you're you're going beyond that. They're, they have curricula, their books. One of my favorite books that you uh, put out a long time ago was called Already Gone, and I read that just you know up one side and down the other. And I think that you and I talked about this last time I saw you. That my my takeaway from it as I got sort of to the end of that book, I thought, you know what? You don't just lose a generation of children; you lose a generation of parents. You lose a generation of grandparents, people who no longer uh, feel the the value and importance of teaching their children from a biblical worldview, and then you lose a generation of children. And I know you and I have, have been witnessing this. The la- last thing that we saw, and I'll just touch on this uh, briefly in the few minutes that we have left here, is a lot of people listening to this day are very... Um, disillusioned because we heard recently on the news that Josh Harris is leaving his wife. And then a few days later, predictably, he said he doesn't consider himself to be a Christian. And I immediately started getting emails from parents saying, how can I prevent this from happening to my own kids? We thought that, you know, this guy, I mean, he wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye, so surely he's safe if his parents trained him up that way. Uh, what do you say to those parents who are feeling uh, disillusioned and frustrated uh, by what's happening right at playing out in real time to someone that they really looked up to who claimed the name of Jesus? Well, you know, first of all, Heidi, Scripture over and over reminds us, put your trust in God, not in man. And we've got to remember that all humans are sinful creatures, all fallible, all have feet of clay. And, you know, in some ways it it is good, I think, for I'd rather kids have um, really great Christian people as heroes uh, rather than, you know, these Hollywood pagan actors and so on. Um, but at the same time, every human being has feet of clay, and we've got to remember that. And so that's what we should always teach our children. First of all, always put your trust in God. People will let you down because they're sinful people, but put your trust in God and always judge what they're doing against God's word. And the interesting thing I notice about Joshua Harris, I mean, I watched his TED talk he gave where, you know, he, he talked about, you know, that he was wrong and all the rest of it and what he wrote and so on. But, you know, I know it was to a secular audience, but still not one mention of God's word in there. And I, I see, you know, when I, when I speak to secular audiences right up front, I'm a Christian. I start with God's word. This is why I believe what I do. And I saw missing uh, a foundation from God's word, and therefore you know what's right and what's wrong. See, the culture has has changed. Uh, I mean, he changed his views about LGBTQ. Well, I got news for Joshua Harris. God's word has not changed. God made man, male, and female. Uh, the whole doctrine of marriage is founded in Genesis. But then again, if you start looking at Joshua Harris, it's very obvious he believed in evolution, millions of years. I mean, 
when you've sort of accommodated man's ideas to the Bible, it sort of undermines the authority of the word. It opens it up to under, undermine the rest. And, you know, when you say, well, maybe God used evolution, well, theistic evolution is only one step away from atheistic evolution. And that's uh, really where he's at. So it's a reminder to make sure our kids don't just add the Bible to their thinking. They really understand that it is the absolute authority, the revelation from the one who knows everything. And we need to make sure they get that as their foundation so they realize it. when the culture changes, my worldview isn't going to change because God's word never changes. Always put your trust in God and train them up to defend their faith against the attacks of evolution and millions of years that cause them to doubt God's word. That's what we need to be doing. Yeah, that's right. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says that the grass will wither and the flower fade, but the word of God will stand forever. And I think it, this has been a cautionary tale to us that we cannot put our trust and our hope in a human being. You're right. Absolutely fallible. Our feet are made of clay and God's word is very clear. One other question for you uh, before I let you go. How do people find out? How can they come and visit with like the best time of year? Because a lot of people listen to this. They're down in Florida or they're in my neck of the woods. I'm over in Washington state. What's the best time of year to come to visit the ark? I think it's well, now. Uh, yeah. I think it's right now. I'm getting on a train. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know what? Different times of the year have different things. Because you but, do a really cool uh, Christmas I, thing there. You should tell everybody about it because they got do. enough time to plan for that. You guys do like a, what? You you make an ice skating rink, right? You do the whole thing. Well, we do. Actually, we have Christmas lights at the Creation Museum. We have live nativity and spectacular garden of lights that I, I, I think you'd be hard to find anywhere to have such a light display. And, of course, um, we also do lots of other things. Now, at the Ark Encounter, uh, we have, um, we're going to have concerts, uh, special, you know, traditional Christmas carols we're, we're singing. We have a group called Steve Hess and Southern Salvation who are with us uh, full-time now, and they'll be doing this special concert, and they do a special kids' concert. We have a special uh, widescreen video. We have a 70-foot by 22-foot LED screen that you've seen, actually, and we'll be Can playing this special a bigger. animated just, Christmas program. Everything's so small with you. You just need to start thinking big. Think outside the box, Ken. Yeah. Start thinking outside the box. <laughs> Think outside the arc. Exactly. <laughs> and then you can you can come and also be on our – we have the biggest um, synthetic uh, ice rink. It's called a glyce rink uh, in America, and we have that there as well. So we, we there's all sorts of things for Christmas, but – um, you know, January and February are winter months, and we don't close the Ark or the Creation Museum. We're closed on Sundays and Mondays, but that they're the low time of month and it's too cold to walk much outside. Uh, but when uh, when you come the rest of the year, the, the beautiful gardens and there's different things, different time of year, and then our Christmas programs, they start the day after Thanksgiving right through to the end of the year. So anytime is a spectacular time to come, really. It's beautiful. And where you guys are located in Kentucky? The Ark is south of Cincinnati, so we're right on Interstate 75, and so it's called Williamstown, but we're really right on the interstate, actually, Interstate 75 in northern Kentucky, and it's about you know 40 minutes uh, south of Cincinnati, about 30 minutes south of Cincinnati Airport, which is in Kentucky that confuses people, but Cincinnati Airport is actually in northern Kentucky, and the Creation Museum is only 10 minutes from the airport. Well, it's spectacular. I've I've been to uh, both of them a couple of times now, and like I, I'm not even kidding. If you ask my kids where would you rather go, they can go to Disneyland or the Ark. 
arc. They'll pick the arc every single time. Uh, it's uh, amazing to see what happens when their eyes light up and they go, oh my goodness, this is this is real. It solidifies what God says in his word and really it brings it to life. So Ken, I just am so thankful for your ministry and thankful for your voice. And it's been a joy. Did you know that I picked, you're the 800th episode here at the podcast. Did you know that? Uh, I heard you say that uh, before, and I thought that is that is really special. It is, and you're like I've been like, hey, dude, my friend Ken's going to come on here, and I'm going to ask him why he doesn't have any vision. So then, I, but then I decided maybe I shouldn't ask you that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you chose the 800 because you thought I was 800 years old. <laughs> no, but you know what? I'll have to think on that. I'll see which uh, which episode you come on next, and maybe we can make some sort of a joke about it before then. <laughs> Ken Ham, I appreciate you coming on so much. For more information, right, people can find you at answersingenesis.org. Is that right? Answersingenesis.org is our main website. And if they want to go direct to the Ark Encounter website, just type in Ark Encounter and they'll find it. That's fantastic. Hey, Ken, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your voice and uh, your defense of the Word of God. It matters. Hey, thank you. It's great to be with you. For more information on Ken Ham and his ministry, you can visit him at AnswersInGenesis.org. All right, in celebration of podcast number 800, woo, woo, moment of silence, we are giving away three gift bundles. You guys are going to love to see what's in these bundles, and here's some good news for you. You can enter to win each one of them. So you can enter in all three places. So the first place you want to go is Instagram. So give a shout out to the podcast. Be sure to tag me at Heidi. St. John. And then each unique shout out or story or post will count as an entry. So you guys have from today until next Friday, August 9th. So go ahead and start tagging and I will announce the winner on Instagram. The next place you can look is iTunes. Go ahead and search for The Busy Mom or search for Heidi St. John and then leave a review. If you've already left a review, no problem. Take a screenshot of it and share it on Instagram. So you've got all week for this one as well. We were going to go, we were going to announce those winners today, but we decided we're going to give you guys a week. So finally, Mom Strong International, if you're not a member over there, uh, not only do we have, we reached a milestone with the podcast, we've just topped 13,000 members over at Mom Strong International. So here's how you enter over there. So now these are three places where you guys can enter to win the bundles, all right? Uh, go to momstronginternational.com, create your free account, or just log in if you already have one, click on the chat room, and then type in your reply to the question that's marked hashtag 800 giveaway. And it's as simple as that. So head on over to momstronginternational.com, create a free account or log in, and then look for the uh, the conversation thread in the chat room that's marked hashtag 800 giveaway. Remember, submissions are open through next Friday August 9th. Jay and I have been so thrilled to see the Lord grow the podcast, and I'm so thankful for what he's doing in your life. Uh, Jay's going to come on with me on Monday, and we're going to do a little bit of a walk through memory lane about the podcast and some of the highlights, some of the most listened to shows. I bet you guys can imagine what they are, and we're going to touch on those on Monday. So you guys have a fantastic weekend. Stay faithful. I'll see you back here on Monday. For more encouragement, visit me online at thebusymom.com.